This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm superstar Frank Morano. Very happy to be on uh, coast to coast, shore to shore, and uh, including in the wonderful city of Las Vegas on K-Dawn. And we actually have some very interesting news out of the state of Nevada. The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Breaking News. You know... Nevada has both a Republican caucus this year and a Republican primary. It's ridiculous. It's idiotic. There's no need for this. The party is recognizing the caucus. That's how they're going to award delegates. You can't participate in both. Trump is going to get all of the delegates from the caucus. Haley is not participating in the caucus. She participated in the primary and... We have a winner. We have a winner in the Nevada Republican primary. Keep in mind, Trump is not on the ballot. The winner was none of these candidates. That's right. Even though Nikki Haley faced no major challenger in Tuesday's uh, Nevada presidential primary, she still lost. She lost to the option that says none of these candidates. So the voters that participated in this primary, they had a choice to reject all of the candidates on the ballot, and they did just that, with more people choosing to vote for none of these candidates than for Haley. I have to think, this is pretty embarrassing. I know there were no delegates at stake, but to lose to nobody? I'd be embarrassed. The outcome in Nevada is Haley's third consecutive loss in an early state primary contest. So he's going to compete in the party-run caucus on Thursday, and he's the heavy favorite to win that. Well, do you know what happened 50 years ago this week? 50 years ago this week, headlines were made not only around the country, but around the world. And it had to do with Patty Hearst. Here's a report from CBS News. There's been a big kidnapping on the West Coast. The victim is Patricia Hearst, the daughter of newspaper executive Randolph Hearst and a granddaughter of the legendary William Randolph Hearst. Richard Threlkeld reports. Patricia Hearst is 19 and a sophomore at Berkeley. She and her fiancé were in her apartment in this building near the campus last night when a woman and two armed men burst in, beat and bound her fiancé and a neighbor, dragged Patricia down the stairs, threw her into the trunk of a car and drove off, firing a volley of shots around the neighborhood as they left. The neighbors were terrified. 
Well, I heard a scream, and then I heard what were gunshots, and I looked out the window, and all I saw were the, um, the sparks of the gun going off, and I hit the floor. Did you hear the, the girl who was being taken out say anything? Well, I heard her pleading, please no, not me, or words to that effect. Today, police were digging bullets out of parked cars and windows and walls all up and down the street. They later found the empty getaway car. It had been stolen and abandoned. Police don't have an awful lot of leads, but they know this kidnapping was too well organized to be spur of the moment. Looked like a planned operation, a quick burst into the scene, the abduction of the girl, the beating of the uh, fiancé and the next-door neighbor, and left the scene just as quick as that. Fifty years ago, the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst, kidnapped by a far-left terrorist organization, it was eclipsed. That blockbuster news was only exceeded by the more shocking revelation two months later that she had renounced her class privilege and joined the militant group. A fascinating story, if ever there was one. And Roger Rappaport, who's written two books on Patty Hearst, one a novel and one the memoir that her fiancé, who was beaten, um, wrote. And he, he wrote that book with the, with the fiancé. He has a, a really interesting piece in the Washington Post this week. And he asks the question that I'd like to ask you. Patty Hearst was kidnapped 50 years ago. Was she a victim or a terrorist? A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. So if you don't remember the history, it was 50 years ago, she was kidnapped in 1974 by this tiny, and weigh in as you see fit, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. She was kidnapped by this tiny, disorganized group called the Symbionese Liberation Army, the SLA. And she began to lose faith in her wealthy family's ability to meet the ransom demand. Initially, SLA was asking for $4 million, which 50 years later, that would be the equivalent of $25 million today, and those demands continued to escalate. So on April 3rd, she released a tape as Tanya, the 11th member of the SLA, and a photo of Hearst, in revolutionary garb, toting a machine gun, instantly made her a front-page celebrity. On April 15th, security footage showed her robbing a San Francisco bank owned by a childhood friend's dad. The following month, she was back in the headlines after firing more than two dozen rounds to rescue her kidnapper, Bill Harris, as he was being tangled by, excuse me, being tackled by security guards at Mel's Sporting Goods. Hours later, she joined Harris and his wife Emily in the kidnapping of suburban L.A. high school student Tom Matthews because they needed his family van as a getaway vehicle. Participated in robberies, participated in attacking security guards, and participated in a kidnapping. Her face was on the post office wanted posters around the country. As the FBI's vast, you know, task force operation chased her across the country for the next 16 months. And she was finally arrested back home in San Francisco in September 1975, not long after 
her involvement in two Sacramento area bank holdups, including one that left a customer dead. Now, her defense attorney said she had been brainwashed. Hearst said she'd been raped by several of her kidnappers and forced to rob banks. And she was forced to read these taped communiques that attacked her family and her fiancé. And the prosecutors insisted that wasn't the case. They cited her own words that she had joined the rebellion voluntarily, turned on her parents, turned on the Hearst Empire. And the prosecutor's argument won over the jury, and she was sentenced to seven years in prison. So who was Patty Hearst? Victim? Terrorist. A lot of people have called her a clueless, wealthy heiress. A lot of people have called her a kidnapping victim, a rape victim, a terrorist, a fugitive. A lot of people say she's the definition of the Stockholm Syndrome. Um, But 50 years later, the answer of what her true nature was is incredibly unclear. And Roger Rappaport writes in this Washington Post piece that his extensive personal interactions with two of the people closest to Hearst during her youth, they don't necessarily answer that question. They can help shed some light on some aspects of one of the most mysterious figures in American history, but it's far from definitive. You know, after she was kidnapped, the fiancé, Steve Weed, never saw her again. Steve Weed lived, uh, he was beaten during her kidnapping. And he began a relationship with Hearst when she was only 16 and he was her 23-year-old high school math teacher. These days, that would be the the scandal, not the uh, kidnapping or the robberies or the murders. And while one of Weed's fellow teachers knew that she was secretly spending nights at his place, her parents were completely oblivious to this secret romance. Then, They announced they're getting married December of 1973. And after reading about their wedding plans in the San Francisco papers, the SLA decided that she would be the ideal target. Two months later, they kidnap her and they beat him. And after he recovered from his beating, the weed moved in with Hearst's parents. But they didn't get along too well. And he left after a few weeks. And around this time, Roger Rappaport interviewed him. For the New York Times Magazine. And when an editor asked if he wanted to co-write his memoir, said sure. And he moved into his house for four months while they worked on this book, which was never published. So, Weed told Rappaport that Hearst resented the way her parents dominated her life. Saying only half in jest that she wished they'd die in a plane crash. He insisted nothing in Hearst's past explained her decision to join the SLA. Once they were together, she brazenly stormed through a United Farm Workers picket line at a supermarket, calling the protesters miserable migrant people and a series of expletives. And at the time, Weed said she had little interest in the women's movement, and she regarded her father's concern and support for impoverished Latinos living in San Francisco with a mixture of distrust, amusement, and disdain. But after her re-education in captivity, she attacked Weed, that's the fiancé, in all sorts of communications that were published by her own father's newspaper, 
In one, she professed her agreement with SLA women who insisted that the trouble with Steve and with all bourgeois men was that they could not abide the thought that women could think and choose for themselves and she would never see or talk to weed again. That decision may have been related to Patty's communicating, declaring her love for one of the SLA kidnappers, William Wolfe. But their love story was cut short when... On May 17, 1974, Wolf and five other SLA members were shot to death and partially incinerated by the LAPD. That 9,000-round shootout would go down as the biggest domestic firefight in U.S. history. Did you know that? Because I thought I was familiar with this case until I started researching. I had no idea. If you would have asked me what was the biggest domestic firefight in U.S. history, I couldn't have told you. So, um, then... She never sees the fiancé again. And according to the SLA and other people that were involved in the SLA at the time, Patty's captors repeatedly told her she was free to return home to her fiancé to live out the American dream with two kids, a dog, and a station wagon. So that wouldn't come until later when in 1979, President Jimmy Carter commuted her sentence after 22 months served. Then, thanks to a vigorous lobbying effort on her behalf, Bill Clinton, in his last official act as president, granted her a full pardon in 2001. And then she ended up marrying her bodyguard, a former San Francisco cop named Bernard Shaw, who was later appointed head of Hearst Corporate Security. She became a mom, a grandmother a philanthropist, an actress, a novelist, a kennel club competition winner, and today she's 69 years old. I didn't see any interviews that she did about this. But her surviving kidnappers, Bill and Emily Harris, went to prison in 1977, and in 1988, five years after they were paroled, um, Bill Harris granted Roger Rappaport his first lengthy interview for a series in the Oakland Tribune. And the SLA, he said, mistakenly assumed Hearst would be an easy $4 million ransom that could jumpstart their revolution. And um, this is what, you know, he said to Rappaport. Patty Hearst was ideal, an heiress and a perfect symbol of the control of the media and the ruling class. What plutocrat wouldn't want to quickly ransom their daughter from a gang of revolutionaries on the eve of of her society wedding. So uh, she learned to shoot a gun when she was nine years old. Her father, Randolph Hearst, supposedly treated her like the son he never had. And when Randolph claimed to be too poor to engage in negotiations with the SLA, it shocked the hell out of his daughter. It hurt her. But she seemed to get over it pretty quickly as she began to consider what repatriation really meant. So... Rappaport asks this SLA guy if he thought Patty was brainwashed or a true revolutionary during her SLA days. This is what Harris told Rappaport. Imagine this. Patricia Hearst's various transitions without complex context are sometimes incomprehensible but often predictable. Make no mistake, she was never a revolutionary. 
She rejected the excesses of her class and she was compelled to rebel against the institutions she'd identified as oppressive because of the kidnapping. She first learned from us that among us, only she had the privilege of a defense, assuming she survived any attempts to apprehend her. We had no problem with her defense as long as she and her lawyers kept it legit. Her public and recorded demeanor after her apprehension put serious pressure on her attorneys to figure out how to monsterize us and embellish the narrative claiming torture, rape, and brainwashing. That was not very comradely. Still, I absolutely feel no animus towards Hearst. She saved my bacon on the Imperial Highway in Inglewood as I was being arrested for shoplifting. So that version of Patty Hearst, the one who came in firing to free her kidnapper from arrest, it's hard to square with the one that Hearst describes of herself in a tell-all book, she wrote that after her brutal kidnapping, the only way to survive was to follow orders, rob banks, kidnap a teenager, and issue these communiques captured, um, you know, crafted by her captors. So what do you think? Fifty years later, the events that followed Hearst's kidnapping remain a mystery. How do you think she should be viewed? As a victim or a terrorist? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Paul Schrader turned her book into a uh, 1988 film starring uh, Natasha Richardson as Patty Hearst. And he added a, a fictionalized encounter between Hearst and her father at the end. And in a review of the movie in The New Yorker, Pauline Kael wrote, did Patty Hearst become part of the SLA willingly or was she simply trying to save her life? The movie shows you that in the state she was in, there was no difference. So I have no idea. It seems like there was some enthusiasm on her part. Now, again, if she was brainwashed and raped, can you really hold her accountable for her actions? I mean, it was interesting to me that the jury that heard that case and heard all the evidence did decide to do that. But clearly, uh, Presidents Carter and Clinton were unconvinced. But it was 50 years ago this week, Patty Hearst kidnapped at gunpoint by the Symbionese Liberation Army and then joining them in bank robberies and kidnappings that earned her a prison sentence. She's going to turn 70 years old in 13 days. She's now known as Patricia Hearst Shaw after she married... You know, the late Bernard Shaw. And uh, most of the time she's in the news these days, it's for French bulldogs that have won prizes in the Westminster Kennel Dog Show. But how should she be regarded? Victim or terrorist? What say you? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up in a little while. Mark Healy is going to be here. Mark Healy wrote... One of the best columns I've read in the style section of the New York Times in many years. I um, <laughs> I hope you read it, but uh, you listen to our conversation first. I'll spare you. I'll spare you all the good parts. But basically, he has become suddenly unemployed and has nothing but time on his hands. And so now, unlike every other New Yorker that just minds his own business and ignores everybody, he's now a crank that's bothering everybody. 
So uh, we'll talk with Mark Healy in uh, in just a minute, um, but uh, or you know in a few minutes. I'm looking forward to that conversation. It really was uh, tremendously well written. In fact, I'm going to link to this piece that he wrote on my uh, Facebook page right now if you want to give it a read uh, prior to our discussion. Uh, but you know, obviously, don't stop listening. But can compliment your listening. The uh, headline is all about how he became a neighborhood crank. It's a little bit more substantive than the headline leads you to believe, but it's, the headline is my life as a neighborhood crank. When you have no job and too much time on your hands, the little things begin to grate. All right. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Oh, I just got word from my friend, uh, Danielle, who uh, had a medical procedure yesterday. I don't know how much she wants to say about what it is, so I will respect her privacy. That uh, She she does not usually listen live. She's more of the podcast-type listenership, but she writes that um, she can't sleep because she's in a lot of pain from this procedure, but the positive aspect of it is that, we, is that she gets to listen to the show. So thank you, Danielle. Happy to have you listening live. And if uh, you're listening live because you're in pain, we're happy to have any of you as well. We hope the show is not what's causing you to be in pain because, you know, ideally the show should relieve some of the pain that you're experiencing. We'll go through the mail a little while, uh, a little bit later as well. Uh, my email, if you want to send a message to be read on air, is uh, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. Steve is in California. What's on your mind, Steve? Hey, Franks. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, about Haley, uh, Nikki Haley. The day after the Iowa caucus, John Dickerson interviewed her as if they had something in cahoots going on, you know, the media and her. And he says, is there anything you can do to convince America to go away from Trump? and towards the one with the more experience. And it was like he was saying, what can you do to get Biden elected? And there are politicians who lose on purpose. She has been rumored to be of the deep state. And because of this uh, image of her, I think she's doing poorly. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, she's just, and thanks for the call, Steve, appreciate it. I think she's just not really where the Republican Party is these days. I mean, I, I think the Republican Party has moved into much more of a, a Trumpian direction, and uh, she's kind of much more of a Romney-McCain-Bush-style Republican, both in terms of both style, in terms of temperament, and in terms of ideology. So I don't think she's uh, at all um, where the GOP is at this point. So I think this is kind of the last gasp of the GOP establishment to see if, um, you know, there's any any wind left in the sails. I, I don't believe that she wants to lose. Now, the question you might ask is, would she prefer Biden to win as opposed to Trump? I think the answer to that is probably yes. I think part of it is because they agree on so many more policy areas, specifically when it comes to foreign policy. But um, I think, you know, she views it maybe as a better opportunity for herself four years from now. She's run it young enough. She could run again. But it becomes very difficult to do that if uh, Trump over the next four years continues to exercise control over the GOP nomination infrastructure. But who knows? Hey, uh, we're on Twitter as well. Yes, I still call it Twitter at Frank Morano. We got a poll going on there. Should Pluto 
be reinstated to a planet. Uh, at Frank Morano, if you want to weigh in. I'll try and read some of your tweets when we go through the mail as well. Matthew Healy coming up in just a, a few minutes. And then uh, tomorrow, we got some interesting things happening tomorrow. You know, speaking of mysteries, there was an interesting story all about um, a fella whose father met sort of a tragic end in Uganda. We're going to get into that in some detail tomorrow. A really interesting mystery story. Jim is calling from one of my favorite places in Cape May, New Jersey. Jim, you live in Cape May or are you just vacationing there? I live in North Wildwood, New Jersey, and I'm on my way to I'm heading up the Parkway to go to Mexico for a week. Wonderful. Have a great time. What's your favorite <laughs> yeah. restaurant in Cape May? In Cape May? Uh, it's hard to say. There's so many good ones. Uh, Ah, uh, right. probably my Italian. Okay. All right. Hey, I don't want to um, throw trick questions at you, Jim. Give me your thoughts on the Patty Hearst situation. Well, I think she was complicit in it. I know it very well. I think she went along with it. She's in a bank with a machine gun loaded in her hand. She could have fired at them any time she wanted to. Also, Bill Walton was complicit in it, the uh, former all-star NBA basketball player. He had let them get holed up in his farmhouse in Pennsylvania. Nothing ever happened to him because he was his big-time basketball player, Jim, and they didn't even bother with him. I appreciate that. All right, uh, those of you that are holding, we'll, we will get to you. What happens when you have nothing but time? We'll explore it with Mark Healy straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I'd like to consider myself a pretty cheerful person. Some might even use the phrase happy-go-lucky. I'm smiling at strangers on the elevator. I am uh, saying good morning and good night when I enter and leave our building to the anonymous doorman. And so often it seems that I am encountering crankiness. And I always struggle to figure out why are people so cranky? Is there some memo about being uptight that I just missed? What are all these people so upset about? Life's pretty good. Well, I have to tell you, one of the best opinion pieces that I have read in a long time was in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago. And this was probably the best explanation that I've come across thus far as to why somebody would be, if not cranky, at least a crank. The uh, headline of the piece was called My Life as a Neighborhood Crank. It was written by an absolutely brilliant writer. And if anyone can elevate being a crank to an art form, it might be this man, Mark Healy, formerly an editor at Men's Journal, GQ, and Rolling Stone. And these days, the Vice President of Content at Ciros. Mark, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Uh, thanks for having me, Frank. I appreciate it. Did I pronounce that correctly, Ciros? 
Sarah, she, Sarah's. and I I left there in April of last year. All right. Uh, well, obviously that brings us to our current situation, which might yeah. be the roots uh, the roots of your neighborhood crankness. Um so <laughs> the subheadline of your column was when you have no job and too much time on your hands, the little things begin to grate. Now, uh, I'm I think our listeners are probably less familiar with Seros, but a lot of folks are familiar with Men's Journal, GQ, and Rolling Stone. And we've been reading a lot of headlines about layoffs or, if you want to use the polite term, restructuring within the media industry. How did you come to find yourself unemployed from all of those prestigious organizations? Well, as I, you know, the magazine industry died a slow death and is is still uh, contracting and and collapsing as we speak, as is media in general. And so you have, um, you know, I wrote it out as long as I could. And I had 20, uh, what did I have, uh, you know, 27 years of, uh, of and really good years of, of working in magazines and editing magazines and working with really talented, and fantastic people. But that industry is drying up and withering. And as I say in my piece, they've kind of handed it off to younger, better hydrated people um, <laughs> who are, you know, who are, who are cheaper and less well-trained, but they're, I hope they have as much fun as we have. Um, and then I worked at Saros and I, uh, Saros is a great tech company and a, a software, a design software platform. And uh, I was able to work there for uh, six years and eventually, you know, they had a couple of really tough quarters. And like every other tech company, they had massive layoffs. And um, I was part of that. So I found myself on the street with way too much time on my hands. And for the first time in my life, uh, my first time in my adult life, um, uh, really having nowhere to be, nowhere to go. No one needed me for anything. My children are grown and out of the house at the moment. So it, it, it was a, it was a, I found myself in this very strange moment where uh, suddenly I'm, I have too much time and I'm looking around and everything is irritating. A couple of interesting uh, things based on what you just said. One, a lot of our listeners may find themselves awake right now because there have been changes in their life. Either they've recently retired, maybe they're recently laid off, maybe they find themselves uh, without a partner for the first time because of a divorce or a, a death of a, a spouse. And a lot of folks will call me from time to time or, or they'll write me saying that they worry a great deal, which is why they're awake right now, about their finances and their financial security. Even though you're not working now and you have uh, a lot of this time on your hands, which we'll get into how that's manifesting itself, are you financially secure? Are you a couple of weeks away from being put out on the street? No, no, I'm I'm definitely not a couple of weeks uh from being put out on the street, but thanks for your concern. If that was concern, was that concern? Mild. It was. It was me? certainly curiosity. But if you need a, if you need a twenty or a cup of coffee, you know, we have a free coffee <laughs> machine here. Okay, great. I'm actually, you know, I've been busy. I've been writing uh, projects that I work on. Uh, I I head up content projects for lots of different people. It's not doesn't take up all of my time. Uh, my wife and I have been working uh, nonstop since. Uh, in her, you know, the late eighties. So, um, we're fine, but, um, but it is, I did hear the interesting thing or the, the sort of rewarding part of this was hearing from all of these people who encouraged me to, you know, hang in there and keep writing 
And, you know, some, the, a common refrain, I, you know, the story got 490 comments in the times before mm. they shut the comments off. Um, and so many of them were, were kind of, some of them were kind of bizarre and hilarious and, and awesome in, in a way. And yet um, a lot of, so many of them were warm and encouraging. And I just, uh, uh, that was a great experience for me. So you have a lot of time, but not necessarily the imminent concern about eviction that some people who are newly unemployed might be, uh, might be dealing with. And a lot of the episodes you chronicle in, the, in this piece deal with how you're spending this newfound time. And I would chronicle it as, or I would characterize it as, a newfound mindset on your part. Were you immediately cognizant that you were seeing things differently and seeing the world differently than when you were an overemployed person? No. Um, I, when I was, um, when I took a picture of the G wagon on, uh, that was parked in the crosswalk, uh, with my phone, as I walked the dog, I realized I, I, this wasn't the first picture I've taken of this particular G wagon, which is pathetic. And I was like, don't I have anything better to do than to chronicle this terrible Parker? You know, because this guy, this person, I say guy, I'm not sure it's a guy. He's incapable. He he parks in the middle of the street. He parks on the sidewalk. He parks in the crosswalks. He parks by the fire hydrant. And I should just, you know, live and let live and, and you know, just go about my business. And yet it's grating to me because um, the, the uh, I, I just feel like it's kind of a, a, a breach of the social contract a little bit to park on the sidewalk. And so even though the story hinges upon me, um, a German shepherd who's relieving himself in the sidewalk, it was really the taking pictures of the G-Wagon made me realize what an old loser I'd become. <laughs> We're talking with Mark Healy, formerly an editor at Men's Journal GQ and Rolling Stone, now unemployed and uh, the writer of this terrific piece, which I just linked to on my Facebook page. People can check it out at facebook.com slash Moranofan. My life as a neighborhood crank. When you have no job and too much time on your hands, the little things begin to grate. Now, I love, um, you know, I, I have much more of a passive-aggressive personality than it sounds like you do. I observe many of these same things that you observe, but rather than going and confronting people, I'll save them for an 18-minute story on the radio. Uh, but I get bothered by some of these same things. And that's why I wonder if you're accurate in, chron- in, in characterizing yourself as a neighborhood crank, because I'm looking at several of the things that you itemize here. The German Shepherd relieving his bowels on a Brooklyn sidewalk, the uh, Mercedes G Wagon parked in the crosswalk. And a lot of folks view you as kind of a hero because you're the guy that stands up and says something about the things that are bothering everybody. Why do you call yourself a neighborhood crank rather than someone that's speaking up on the side of justice? Well, I think justice is a strong word. I mean, I'd, I'd prefer to, to reserve uh, justice for situations and injustices that really warrant it. Um, and there are plenty of those to go around. Mm. I think that, you know, and I, I, I don't know if anyone sort of sees me as a hero, but I did stand up and did, did sort of call out some things that I saw. Um, you know, I think people are, you know, people obviously, you know, New York City is um um huge and uh ever moving and crowded it contains 
you know, people speaking a zillion different languages. It can, it, you know, the poorest people live among the very wealthiest. It's a big, crazy place. And we, you know, step on each other's toes and we get in each other's faces and it's inescapable, right? I mean, if you live in the city, you understand that human contact with other humans, whether you know them or choose to have contact with them, uh, is just part of the deal. It's like it's the bargain. And we have to sort of respect those boundaries. And I think that we're we're actually better at it than most of the people in that I've come across. I think people who live in cities have a higher tolerance for uh, their fellow humans. So you find yourself with a whole lot of extra time at the moment and behaving differently than you otherwise would have. You're uh, confronting the uh, the inconsiderate dog walker. You're confronting the inconsiderate Parker. Do you think part of your reaction uh, to these individuals and other incidents is also a manifestation of your frustration about where you are professionally at the moment, getting laid off from your nice tech job and not being able to write full-time in uh, magazine journalism right now? That's a good observation. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I think that what I tried to express in the piece is how you feel kind of left out of the, you know, sidelined a little bit. You're benched from, you know, New York City life, city life in general and American life is very much based on your occupation, how you do, being busy, um, you know, the hustle. And when you're sort of sidelined, even partially, you know, because I was still chasing down this, you know, this story or working on this project or something, I was keeping myself reasonably busy, but you're still, you're out of the hustle and flow of the, of the real action. And that's the part that's difficult because suddenly you feel as if you get a taste of what it's like to be retired. We have a lot of folks listening around the country, and they may not kind of be up on the New York lifestyle, which you describe so accurately, not only in this conversation, but in this piece. And you write that minding one's business is a bedrock feature of the New York social social contract. And you're so right. And you write that it's one that arguably supersedes all other issues, including the collective responsibility to maintain a feces-free sidewalk. Once you came to realize that you're no longer adhering to the social contract that the rest of us New Yorkers are adhering to of just minding our own business and ignoring anyone and everyone around us, did you notice that any New Yorkers were treating you differently? Are they looking at you? Are they staring at you? Are they pointing at you and saying, oh, there's the town crank or the neighborhood active citizen? I didn't wear a sign. I didn't walk around, you know, uh, telling everyone this, Frank. <laughs> but no, I, they didn't. You know, I will tell you though the the original sort of I, the the original name I had was Uncle Karen because <laughs> that's a funny name I had. Well, I think it's funny anyway. That's a name I had for for this character I was becoming. So it was kind of like um, um, I turned it into a little bit of a character, but. The Times, in their wisdom, said, you know, why use a racially charged um, nickname like oh, Karen? And, you know, it has this connotation. And I, they said it would just distract from 
what would normal what would otherwise be a really healthy conversation of people relating oh, to the story uh, and uh, i think yeah, they were right yeah i i suppose but um you mentioned that this was your little bit of uh, taste of retirement and uh, you say that the one thing no one tells you about getting laid off is how it ages you I've noticed a lot of friends of mine seem to age almost instantly, almost overnight once they leave their jobs. I'm talking people that were 70, 71, 72, 75 who are as, you know, uh, adwert and as uh, with it as any 35-year-old. And then the minute that they, uh, they retire, they become an old person. And I've seen it also manifest physically as well. I know you're talking about behavioral changes and behaviorally acting like an older person uh, saying, hey, kids, you know, turn down that damn music. But have you noticed physically that you feel any older? No, I don't feel physically. I don't feel older. Um, But I, I do understand that, you know, I think what's happening or what happens to as you said, your friends who retire at 71, 73, 75, whatever, is they lack, they, they give up their purpose. And, you know, they, they, um, they, they give up this thing that, that sustains their sort of curiosity and challenges them and um, gives them kind of, you know, uh, an organizing factor around which to sort of live their life, you know, and you take that out. It's a very hard thing to replace. You also talk about how um, the passage of time is different. You know, if I have one daily wish every day, it's that I wish I just had another hour or two to get things done. You don't feel that way anymore. No, and I and it was it was a pretty sudden shift. Um, you know, I, I, I yeah, I, I have a, a little bit more time than than I uh, than I than I you know ever imagined having and, and um, I hope I'm looking forward to the time when I don't have nearly enough, but it was a confluence of things. So, it's, you know, losing, losing my job, um, my kids going off to college, um, you know, uh, just not, you know, the, the, both of those things came and suddenly I was like, I had a lot of time on my hands. I've often fantasized about what it would be like to have extra time. I can see myself reading more. I can see myself watching that classic movie that I haven't gotten around to, uh, calling up old friends to uh, to catch up, uh, to exercise a little bit more, and do all these things that I never seem to get around to. It seems like with you, the fantasy of uh, more time as a luxury didn't exactly meet reality. How come? You know, it's another good question, Frank, that I haven't really, um, maybe if I was a stronger, stronger personality and had more character and drive. No, I, I think that, um, I think that it's a combination of things. I, I, I do do things. I, you know, I, I am active. I, I work out. I, uh, see friends. I do some volunteer work. I do some work. And yet still, at you know nine forty five every night, I look at my and suddenly I'm I'm looking at, I look at my phone. I'm like, oh, thank God I can go to bed. <laughs> you know, it's almost ten o'clock. I can go to bed. I can't like just I can't I I can't like honestly go to bed before ten o'clock. It's not in my I, in my I just can't do that. But ten o'clock I can go to bed. 
You have a wonderful phrase in your piece called the time inequality gap, which I just love and uh, am going to adopt because you describe yourself as now being the kind of person everyone dreads making plans with. This is certainly true in my case because I find that I never have enough time. And when I'm when I've made plans for someone could be two weeks from now, three weeks from now, a month from now. My hope is that between now and whenever I'm supposed to see them, they will cancel and they'll be the bad guy and I'll get credit for the attempted socialization or the attempted meeting and yet still now have that hour free from that obligation. I am, clearly you're not the guy I should be making a lunch date with. You know, you shouldn't because as I said, it's like making a lunch date with your grandmother. Like that is locked down. I will be there. I will be on time and I'm not going to cancel. (laughs) Um, What is the best thing about your newfound time freedom? Oh, God, that's a good, you know, the the challenge is to you waste so much time when you're at when you're out of work, you waste so much time and energy getting finding new work. So, you know, and that's an inevitable sort of time suck um, and certainly an effort, you know, waste of effort in a lot of cases. Uh, I think one of the things I I have managed to slow down a little bit, and I was not I was not a person who, and I'm still not a, a person who sits still uh, as much as I would like. And I think that that's a real skill, and uh, it's something that we all should should get better about nurturing in ourselves is the ability to do nothing, to um, take a nap, take a bath. I definitely take a lot of baths. Mm. And sometimes followed by a nap. I will do that. I don't care. I'm, I'm only, you know, I'm only 56 years old, but I will take a bath and take a nap on a Wednesday if I want to. But it doesn't happen that often. I think that's great. Um, one of the things that we've seen, and we've been talking with Mark Healy, I hope you'll check out this piece in the uh, style section of the New York Times headline, My Life as a Neighborhood Crank. One of the things that uh, I think everybody has observed, especially if you're a seasoned citizen, is that there does seem to be a little bit of discrimination against older people. I mean, you'd never know it by who's leading our country or poised to lead our country, but it seems like when it comes to marketing, when it comes to um, trying to come up with what TV shows uh, that uh, are going to be pushed on the networks or, or really anything else that there is a, a almost a, a thinking or an idea that old people don't count. I mean, I see it in this uh, in the ratings for this show. We kill it with older, older demos, and I'm very proud of that. But people that are cynical or critical of what I'm doing, they'll say, oh, you, know, you may be number one, but you're number one with a bunch of old people. My question for you, Mark, is being in this forced pseudo retirement, has this given you an appreciation for older folks that you didn't have previously? Yes, totally. And I, and I, I was not someone who was terribly empathetic toward old people. I mean, I, I wasn't. I, I was in a way that I now regret because, as I say, and as and as you you just sort of pointed out, people for like when the when the forces of marketing move past caring about appealing to you when, you know, when court, when big corporations are sort of moving you, moving you aside and telling you, you don't really matter that much. We don't care if you don't know how to log into your Hulu account. Mm -hmm. We don't care if you, you know, your iPad 
charger changes all the time. Right. Or if you can't keep your landline phone or if your newspaper, the hard copy of your newspaper didn't get delivered on time. Yeah, they just and the, these are these are and I know that these are com- commercial um, decisions that are made, but. You know, you get shunted aside, mm. and I think there's a there are examples of that, not just in terms of, of um, you know, of commerce and uh, appealing to people. Society pays less and less attention to the needs American society uh, to the needs of older people, and I, I think there's some some injustice. That's an actual injustice. Um, and I think that other cultures that I've seen are much better about that because. Typically, they have multi-generations living in one home or they live closer to their parents or um, and, you know, one thing I definitely talk to my mom more than I I, I did before. So that's one upside. Um, But um, but, yeah, I think that's real. And I think that's not something I appreciated. I was more in the business of. Uh, helping usher them aside rather than paying attention mm-hmm. to their needs and being empathetic. Mm. Uh, well, well said, Mark. Uh, this is one of the best pieces that I've read in the Times in a long time. Congratulations. I'm glad it's gotten such a, a great response. I hope people that uh, that haven't read it yet after hearing our conversation will do that. And hey, uh, who knows? Maybe we'll see you back in the job market sometime soon. I hope so. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. Mark Healy, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can certainly do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at midnight with Frank Morano. All right, it's Wednesday. You know what that means. It is our day to pick the listener of the week. Some stiff competition this week in the 10 criteria to be named listener of the week. They include frequency of listening, on air calls or contributions, quality of written correspondence, on topic social media participation, insight, topic suggestion, or assisting with guests, evangelism about the program, supporting me or my endeavors, subscription to the podcast, longevity, and being nice. And this is probably overdue, but I must name this week's Listener of the Week as someone that is my most dogged defender on social media and seems like a great person, Donna Lee Masterson. Congratulations, Donna Lee Masterson. Please email me your bumper music selections for tomorrow. Well-deserved. Your influence counts. Use it.